0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, Before we jump in today, will you pray with me? Jesus, I'm really uh, struck by the line that we just sang as fire burns away all the lies. We live in a world that is highly deceptive. We are highly deceptive creatures. We constantly believe lies that people tell us about ourselves, about you, about the world. We constantly lie to one another. We do it because we're afraid. We do it because we wanna preserve ourselves. We do it because it's, it's a second language for us. And yet the message of your story, the message of your presence, Jesus, is that your fire, the fire of your love has burned away all the lies. We don't have to be afraid anymore. And we know full well that if you burn away all the lies that we can't deceive ourselves anymore, we're gonna stand before you very naked and very ashamed. We know that. We know that the world is broken. We we don't want to face the truth because the truth is kind of despairing. But your words are take heart. Don't be afraid. I'm doing a new thing, can you not see it? Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I make all things new. I make you new, I make your family new, I make your work new make the city new, come to my table, drop the lies, let them be burned away, don't be afraid. It'll it'll sting for a second, but then it'll feel good. You'll feel free. That's the promise of your gospel, Lord, and we take you up on it, and so we approach with open hands and open hearts, um, saying that you have permission to speak to us, regardless of where we are. Some people here who will call you Lord Jesus, uh, some people here don't know what to call you. Um, the, the Jesus that they grew up hearing about or um, that they heard their friends talk about, it's not exactly um, someone they want to follow, but they're, they're here, they're listening. So we just speak to their hearts. We tell them that you are a good God, a big God full of love, full of sacrifice, full of service, and that you have not come to hurt the world nor anyone in the world. You've come to save the world. You've come to save it. We love you, Jesus. It's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a mini-series on faith and work. That's what we're calling it, faith and work. That's not original. We got that from Redeemer Church in the Upper West Side uh, that actually has a faith and work institute. They've done a lot of incredible research. They have a lot of great resources um, to help us think through all the various ways that our faith or, or this story intersects with our work. And the reason why we're doing that is threefold. One, it's fall. Summer's over. I know, I'm sorry guys. I'm just as angry as you are, but it's over, all right? It's back to work, it's back to school, new rhythms, new responsibilities, and so in that we want to start thinking through, okay, maybe let's, let's engage in our work differently this year. Maybe there's a, a better way, maybe there's a more broad way to do it. Secondly, the reason why we're doing a mini-series on faith and work is that New York City is a place, unlike many others, where you are almost exclusively defined by what your hands produce, so far as I can tell, this city doesn't really care about you, the person, and what your favorite television show is, or, well, they care about your favorite television show if it makes them money, you know. This city cares about you based on what your hands and your minds produce, and when that stops, you are expendable. That's, that's a blunt truth. That's so far as I can tell. Correct me if I'm wrong. But what we want to examine is, is that what God thinks? Does God define you based on what you can produce for him? And if not, then well, how do I engage in my work? What does that look like? And then thirdly, the reason why we're doing this mini-series on faith and work is because you and I, we've inherited a wrong view, uh, a false view that requires correction. We tried to, to do that last week. Um, we said that the Christian story has three elements, three small uh, chapters which are deeply profound in their scope. And they are this, the whole world was good. The whole world, when God created the world and everything in it, including work that is good. You and I have heard often, we might have even said, work is a necessary evil, right? Not in the Christian story. In the Judeo-Christian story, the first image we get of God is as a gardener who's creating, that is to say, who is working, from love, from joy, and then he creates us, and he says, hey, pick up a spade. Come till the garden with me. We are meant to be co-gardeners, sub-gardeners with God. Work, the desire to work, the desire to contribute something is pre-fall. The whole world is good, work is good. But secondly, everything is broken. The whole world is broken, and work is broken. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, the various ways that work is broken. But third, and this will be next week, and we'll hint at it at the end of today, the whole world will be redeemed, it'll be restored. The Jewish people have a concept called the Tikkun Alam, which means the restoration of all things. Um, Part of that wrong view we inherited was this idea that when Jesus returns, he plucks up the saved and he takes them to heaven, no. Heaven's coming here. The earth is going to be restored. All things will be repaired and made new, which includes work. And we're starting to see the first highlights, the first glimmers of that. All right, so last week we talked about that story. Next week we're going to talk about the restoration. But today we have the fun topic of talking about how's it broken? How is work broken? I don't even need to preach. You're all all probably like, you know, I got this. All right, let's go to brunch, right? I can just list all the various ways work is broken. A lot of today's message comes from Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, which I encourage all of you if you haven't read, pick it up and read. It's a phenomenal, more comprehensive look at this idea. But what I wanna do for today in examining how work is broken is we're gonna look at a book of the Bible. Maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't. Called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, anyone ever read Ecclesiastes? It's a great book. It's basically the Bible's form of Hamlet, all right? This guy um, was a ruler in Israel. He calls himself the teacher, the coelet. Uh, tradition holds that it was Solomon, but basically he was a ruler in Jerusalem and Israel, and it's his reflections on his pursuit in the world. It's his reflections on all this wealth that he's amassed and um his his take on life and it's super depressing guys super depressing it's a lot of woe is me and woe is this and uh, you you'll see in a second it is like a distraught distressed unhappy ruler in israel and it was a long time ago i read hamlet but that's what i can remember about hamlet is he was very emo very very emo <laughs> but what ecclesiastes does is articulates the brokenness, the depths of the cosmic brokenness in this world and in ourselves better than most. He articulates the fallen nature of the world and by extension of work better than most. And most of us, we don't want to think about how broken we are and how broken the world is. We distract ourselves. With frivolities, we distract ourselves all the time so we don't have to think deeply about how broken the world is. My older brother, who I've talked uh, about before, he actually um, experienced Jesus through the book of Ecclesiastes, which astonishes me because there's really no hope in Ecclesiastes. Um, but he did. And my older brother, like I said, I've talked about him. He's like the quintessential prodigal son. Uh, as soon as he developed sentience, like a conscious, he was out the door. He ran as far and as fast from God as he could. And he was gone. We, I mean, we didn't know where he was, um, psychically, spiritually. And then I still remember he, he called me on the phone when I was in Atlanta, and I was stunned. I did a double take, because my brother never called me on the phone. And we had the most awkward seven-minute conversation about life. I was like, I don't know how, who are you? How do we talk right now? And then he called me a week later. And he told me that he uh, had given his life to Jesus. And then as we started talking more, of like, what precipitated this? The book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I was like, that's something I've never heard before. <laughs> but so for anyone in the room, I only say that to say for anyone in the room who would not call themselves a follower of Jesus, which is totally fine, as we say, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room here. I think there's something here for you too. I think there's something here that you can catch and maybe even see, oh my gosh, this You know, the Bible's Hamlet is voicing what my heart is saying, you know. So there's something here for all of us. Now, the scope of the entire book is outside of our context today of looking just at work. But I want to pull out the relevant passages, okay? So how is work broken? How is work broken? There are two primary ways and then endless, like, divisions and subdivisions of that. The two primary ways that work is broken that I can see is this. The nature of work itself has become meaningless. The nature of work itself has become meaningless. And then secondly, the worker's motivation is now towards self-preservation. What am I basically saying? Well, there are two variables in work. There's the worker and the work itself, right? Both of those are broken in different ways. The nature of work was to have been meaningful, now it's meaningless. And we'll talk about what we mean by that. And the worker's motivation to engage in the work, it was to have been a co-gardener with God, now it's towards self-preservation. And I choose that word carefully and we'll talk about why uh, I say it that way later as well. But let's start in the beginning. Work has become meaningless. This is the very first line in Ecclesiastes. This is how um, Hamlet opens up his reflections. He says this, vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You can hear Shakespeare, can't you? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all their toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes and the earth remains forever. What's it all for? You're gonna die, friends you're gonna die. (laughs) It's all vanity, it's all vanity. Now what's interesting about the way he opens is that first word he uses. The word for vanity is havel, havel. And and it's it's a broad word, um, but at its core, what it's getting at is vaporous. Uh, To be havel is to be vaporous, it's to be empty, it's to be futile, or what I really like is, it's to be elsewhere, always. Havel, when he says vanity of vanities, he's saying Havel Hevelim. Vanity of vanities, Havel Hevelim. It's, it's, it's this concept of the grass is greener on the other side. And you're always getting there and you're realizing, oh, it's, it's not it. Oh, maybe it's over there. Maybe it's in this. And you get there and you're like, oh, that's, that's not it. Havel and work as Havel is to be elsewhere always. You're looking to it to bring meaning, but it never does. Work is now, because of the brokenness of it, ever elusive. You'll never find what you're looking for. If you're looking for your work to last, if you're looking for your advancement or what might come out of a job well done to not be ephemeral, to be lasting, you're never gonna find it ever. Even my job as a pastor of a church, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this, this is the only work that does last. Well, beneath the surface, but not this. Hope Brooklyn, we're less than a year old. Friends, there's going to come a day where Hope Brooklyn is no more, where all the work that, and the investment that we've poured into this, is going to be gone. Do you know one of the nicknames for Brooklyn is the borough of churches? Walk around Brooklyn. There are churches everywhere, And I dare say, and I don't wanna be like a broad generalization, but many of these massive churches, beautiful buildings have less than 20 people there inside on a Sunday. Havel, it's vanity. A generation comes and a generation goes and nothing lasts. Your work will be subject to unfair critique. It will be subject to misunderstanding When you read the history of theology and theological thinkers, I dare say most of them, uh, when we attribute ideas to their name, they would absolutely dismiss them. We do it with Jesus all the time. (laughs) I can't tell you, I love how Rob Bell puts it actually. He goes, when I sit with people who tell me about the God they don't believe in, very often I say, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Right, your work will be misrepresented. I actually uh, heard this theory I don't know if it's true, but you know Machiavelli, who wrote The Prince? And, and it's, it's this famous, famous book uh, with the famous line, the, the means justify the ends. So basically, it's writing saying, when you want to rule people, you rule by power, and you rule through fear and coercion. Well, there's a theory that he wrote that book in jest, as satire, because during... Um, when he lived in Italy, it was city-state, so one family had power and then they were ousted and he was the scribe of, of that town, I think Florence, I could be wrong though. And then the new family came into power and they sort of like you know, beat him into submission and so he wrote this work and he dedicated it to them, but it was very common knowledge that he did not like them, but he dedicated his work to them. What if he wrote this entire book about the will to power as satire talk about having your idea, your life's work totally misunderstood, misrepresented. The horror he might feel knowing the Stalins who have read his work and have put forth his ideas when he didn't even mean his ideas. I don't know if that's true or not, but it proves the point that our work, regardless of how much we care about it, is not going to last. It, it will be unfairly criticized You will hand it over to a buffoon who will destroy it, Havel. It's elusive. You look for it to bring meaning to your life, and it's never there. And then you walk past Greenwood Cemetery, past tombstone after tombstone, and you think beneath every one of those tombstones is me. They cared about their work. They cared about their lives. They looked for meaning just as much as you and I did. For what end? To what purpose? John Rockefeller was once asked, how much money will make you happy? And he had already made a lot at this point. How much will make you happy? His answer is the You know what he said? One more dollar. One more dollar. The grass is always greener. I'll get it and then it's gone. I'll get it and then it's gone. It's not even the it. The meaning's not there. It's vanity. It's the pursuit. It's the greed. If you're looking for a promotion to be like, oh, once I get this promotion, that'll be it. I'll find the satisfaction, the wholeness I'm looking for. You won't. And obviously, there's nothing I can say that will, like, convince you of this. Just know that we're here. We'll be walking beside you in it. That's the beauty of the church is that we have community to make mistakes with and then run back to. But if if you think the promotion is going to finally realize what your heart's looking for, it won't. If it's gonna be a career change, yeah, this job I'm stuck, but if I, if I jump to this one, then I'll find it, nope. If it's a finished project, you bring out, like you've been working for months on this project, and you bring it out and it, you're so excited about it, they're gonna forget about it in two days. That won't bring it either. You'll get an award on Monday, you'll be disillusioned with that award on Tuesday, and everyone will have forgotten your name by Friday. Havel, Havelim. It's all vanity. <laughs> and as New York City people, we need to hear this probably more than others. I mean, no, nah, I shouldn't say it. Not more than others. We all struggle with this. But it's a, it's a vicious lie in this city that your career, though important and though it can be redeemed, and we'll talk about the ways it can be redeemed, that you can see God in it, in and of itself is vapor. It's futile and you will never find what you're looking for in it ever. you won't find it. I had a professor, probably my favorite professor, uh, named Stanley Hauerwas at Duke, and um, I remember he was he was awesome because he just like rambled, but everything he said was wise. He's, I would love to get there one day, but um, he was talking to us who you know future pastors, and he just starts rambling and he's like. All of you you pastors are, are coming up to me saying, I need a career, I need a career. And, and he looks at us, he goes, really? I didn't know Jesus died to give you a career. It's true. You wanna know what this story's about? Jesus did not die to give you a career. Jesus died to give you life. And life is found in all sorts of places which is why you hear stories of people who get their career and then leave it all in pursuit of this God and find something that the world doesn't understand because that's the life they're talking about. But work in and of itself has become meaningless. A brief aside, but I think it's important for us because many of us in this room um, are millennials, right? Many of us are. And uh, I saw this... um, this viral video, of course, about the millennial generation. There's been a lot of literature written about us guys, a lot of literature. Um, But it was talking about why millennials are struggling in the workplace. And I thought it it had some really good points Uh, because I've talked with a lot of you guys and you've come out of college and you've sort of run and smack into a wall and you're like, what is going on? Ecclesiastes has new resonance all of a sudden. And you're like, what is going on? And he sort of explains why that is. And I think it's important for us to maybe understand a bit more about ourselves so that we can make sense of of our vocations and our work a little more. He goes, millennials in the workplace are struggling for three reasons. And the first, and he goes, the easiest way I can put, this is Simon Sinek, by the way. He goes, the easiest way I can put this is um, failed parenting strategies. Now, for anyone in here who's a parent of a millennial, he's not talking about you, of course. All right, come on. He's talking about the other parents. Um, But he called it failed parenting strategies, and and the best way he said the failed parenting strategies is epitomized in this idea, that you can have anything you want just because you want it. That we were raised with the belief that if I am willing to work hard enough, if I have a dream and I'm willing to put in the work, I can get it. And we're all graduating college and we're entering the workforce and we're finding that's frankly just not true. It's not true. But what's happening is our self-esteem is being shattered by this. I mean, even in the Bible we see it's not true. There's a a parable that Jesus tells. It's called the parable of the talents. And so this, this master has two servants and one gets five coins and the other one gets two coins. And they both put their coins to work. And the first person makes 10 coins out of it. The second person only gets four coins. That's what happens. We're born with different hands. That's what the essence of privilege is. Some of us are born with a better hand. It's simply not true. I dare say the guy who was given two coins, he wanted to make 10 coins, probably, but he's just not able to. It's not true that we can have something just because we want it. But so much of our psychology is formed as young children. So we're getting out into the workplace and we're saying, hey, it's been six months. Can I have a promotion? And they're like, no. And it's like, why? It's just shattered. Now obviously that's a caricature, but there's elements of truth in that. There's elements we've been thinking if we work hard enough and now it's not happening, what's going on? The second thing that's making it really difficult for us millennials is technology. Technology, studies are now coming out that show that technology releases dopamine in our brains. The same chemical that's released by alcohol, gambling, and drugs. Now why is this important? This is important for this reason. If you talk to an alcoholic, many times, not all, but many times, their first uh, exposure to alcohol was when they were a teenager, 11, 12, 13. What's going on? Well, up until about 11, 12, 13, we all looked to our parents and to our families as a source of identity. as as someone to tell us who we are. But in those teenage years, it gets really awkward and we start looking to one another, to our peers, to tell us who we are. And there's lots of hormones swirling. And I mean, y'all remember this. It was just like very, very awkward. There was definitely one time, guys, where I asked out Chrissy Reese. I, I, I wrote her a card and I said, Chrissy, will you be my girlfriend? Yes, no, or I still need to think about it some more. All right? And I still remember, being in the lunchroom, I'm sitting with my boys, You know, we're eating the square pizza, y'all remember that, it was great, and uh, she walks up to me, and as she gets closer, I get more and more terrified. And so as she approaches, like right before me, I duck down under the table, and I pretend like I'm tying my shoe. And I stay there for two minutes, guys. I kid you not, and I'm just looking underneath the table, and I see her legs, and she's just standing there waiting for me to come back up, and I'm thinking, I'm not coming back up. And then she walked away and the, the note was there and it said no. But it's okay. I'm so over her, guys. I'm so over her. Yeah! <laughs> we all have to go through that. That's the point of growing up. We have to have those tough, awkward moments of like walking over to someone be like, hey, I, I like you. <laughs> and we need to hear them say, I don't like you. And that's okay. It's not going to break me. We need to have those moments of conflict where there's no resolution, where it just takes time. And when you talk to an alcoholic, many of the times what they discovered is when that got really hard in those 11, 12, 13 year old age, when they experienced those awkward situations and those conflicts, oh, here's this thing that I can consume and it makes me feel really good. The pain goes away like that. (laughs) Multiply that over over and over and over again, I have an addict. Friends, we are all, myself included, legal addicts. Because when things got tough in those teenage years, we all had these devices and it's becoming even more so that I don't have to sit in the pain. I can go to it and it makes me feel better. Which is why, what, what do we do? You and I, don't even, we're in this together right now. We're in this together, don't make me feel awkward. What do we do when we go to a party? And we sort of survey the room. We see if we know anyone. If we don't know anyone, what's the first impulse that comes? Reach into the pocket, isn't it? Yep. Instead of walking over to the room to a complete stranger saying, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? Where do you live? It's, it's our addiction. And so what's happening is millennials are getting to the workplace and we've been told that if we work hard enough, we can have anything we want. And the, the world's saying that's not true and our self-esteem is shattered and we're all addicts <laughs> and the third thing is we don't have an impatience muscle or we don't have a patience muscle we've grown up in a world of instant gratification and a lot of this stuff guys it's no fault of our own like parent, our parents didn't know this is what it was going to do to us we're sort of the guinea pig generation and we're figuring it out but we've grown up in a world where we can have anything we want right now now this wasn't like this when we were teenagers but now i don't even have to wait for like the show to come out Um, Each week, I can watch the entire season in one setting. We don't have to show patience for anything. And as Sinead points out, that's okay, except for the two most important things that only develop with more time, which is job satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. Both of those only happen through more time. We haven't done that We haven't exercised that muscle. So what are we doing? We're quitting jobs after six months. Why? Because I'm not making an impact. You've been there for six months. Not making an impact. And we mean it with full sincerity. I feel it sometimes. Work is broken. Another concept that Keller uh, points out is this idea of thorns and thistles. In Genesis three, after Adam and Eve disobey God's command and they eat of the fruit, um, God is levying out, he goes, this is what's gonna happen. There's gonna be some curses that happen in the world. And to Adam he says this, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. This is important when we say work is meaningless. Adam and Eve, you and I, we still produce, we still have those moments where like work is satisfying, right? We have those moments of meaning, but they're few and far between. The garden was supposed to have produced big, juicy, fat grapes. Instead, now our work produces small, measly, miserly grapes, and a bunch of thorns and thistles around them. Maybe there's you know, a couple edible grapes in there that we can eat. But most of the time, it's gonna take a lot of work, a lot of energy, and what we're gonna hold up after a, a huge harvest season is gonna be like, oh, this is not appetizing. So if you're looking for the quest for the fruit tree, free of thorns is your aim, it's meaningless. You're not gonna find it. So teachers, for every one student, you serve, that gets it, five will not. Software developers, you're going to spend months and months and months on a product. you're going to bring it to market, and within seven months, the technology is going to be obsolete. Scientists, I'm reading a book right now on uh, theories and physics, and I can't even imagine. This is very common in like the scientific community. They based their lives, they based all their work on a theory that is later disproven. They spent their entire life developing equations based on a theory that wasn't even true. Oh my gosh, how depressing is that? But still good work, it still pushed forward the community. So you get a couple small grapes, but not what you wanted. Parents, need we say more? About thorns and thistles coming up with the hard, painstaking labor of raising a child. Doctors, for every patient you help, five you won't. And the one you help might not even be grateful or understand the sacrifice you made for them. And even in my job, I, I wish it was abnormal, but it happens. Where after I, I mean, obviously not from you guys, like I'm talking about elsewhere, like you guys are great, all right? But sometimes it happens where I'll preach a sermon and someone will come up and be like, oh, that was, that was really great. Again, not you guys, other guys. And they'll be like, that was really great. I love that you said X, Y, and Z. And I'm sitting there smiling and I'm saying, but that's the exact opposite of what I said. That's, that's what, wait, t- where, do, where, where did I say that exactly? Like, tell me exactly where I said that. Small grapes. Still pushes it forward, but I don't get the response that I want. man. I would love it is after every single sermon, we were all on our knees in tears together. That's never happened. (laughs) Still holding out hope. (laughs) Which means we have to approach work a bit differently. Which means, as we said last week, that our first job is not to serve the community but to serve the work. That my job is not to produce results. My job is to pour all of my efforts, all of my energies and to painting a picture of a world that I so desperately want you to see, of a God I want you to see. That's all, that's my work. That's my work. But thorns and thistles will come because work now isn't the fat grapes that it was supposed to have been. It's small, measly, miserly grapes. And some good ones too. It's a lot harder now. So that all being the case, that work is meaningless. Work is vanity. There are two wrong responses that the the writer of Ecclesiastes takes, um, and then we'll get to one right one later on. Here are his two wrong responses. This is what he says. Oh, I did great things. I built houses, I planted vineyards, I designed gardens and parks, and planted a variety of fruit trees in them, I made pools of water to irrigate irrigate the groves of trees. I bought slaves, male and female, who had children, giving me even more slaves. I acquired large herds and flocks, larger than any before me in Jerusalem. I piled up silver and gold, loot from kings and kingdoms. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song, and most exquisite of all pleasures, voluptuous maidens from my bed. Oh, how I prospered. I left all my predecessors in Jerusalem far behind, left them behind in the dust. What's more, I kept a clear head through it all. This is success in a way that you and I probably will never see. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave into every impulse. I held back nothing. I sucked the marrow of pleasure out of every task. My reward to myself for a hard day's work. And then I took a good look. At everything I'd done, I looked at all the sweat and hard work, and when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to any of it. Nothing. (sighs) Realizing that no matter how hard you work on something, it's always going to be an element of meaninglessness. It's not gonna give you what your heart's looking for. There are two wrong responses that the author of Ecclesiastes said he undertakes. And the first one is revelry. He goes, I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse. We as New Yorkers, we can see both of these responses quite acutely. As F. Scott Fitzgerald writes in The Great Gatsby, the city scene from the Queensborough Bridge is always the city scene for the first time. And it's first wild promises of all the mystery and the beauty and the world. This city, friends, can be one great ball of dopamine and we all know it. There's a a buzz about this place, especially when you get here for the first time. There's an electricity, there's promise. It's almost like New York is saying, this is, it's it's Mufasa to Simba, right? This can all be yours. (laughs) Like, you can have this. You can do it. And we're all just like, you know, walking down Queensborough like I can conquer the world. (laughs) One great ball of dopamine. So he goes, I said no. I'd never said no to myself. I went and I got it. And there was nothing there. There There's nothing there. As we all know, when we sober up after that morning of partying, that's a dark place to be. There's nothing to it. It's not there. It's Havel. Oh, maybe it's elsewhere. So then the next thing he says is I became cynical. Our two responses we can go toward revelry, we can go toward cynicism. All or nothing. Because it was smoke and spitting into the wind. So Tom Wolfe describes New York and he says one belongs to New York as much in five minutes as in five years. You realize that it's the same promises of dopamine day in and day out and it's a lot harder and when you realize that there's a cynicism this city it feels like that someone produces a work uh, a, a work of art a piece of work and like flies swarm like flies on poop sorry about the metaphor but I have a dog right now so there's a lot of poop I'm picking up so if I when Moses goes to the bathroom if I don't pick it up immediately if I give it two minutes I'll walk over there to get it. And there'll be like 20 flies come off. I'm like, where did you guys come from? Doesn't it feel like that? The other day I was reading an article. Um, it was, You know on the New Yorker, they had like the letters to the editor. And there was this one letter. There was a particular article written about a movie. And I didn't read that article fully, but for what I did, I was like, it's interesting. And then this letter to the editor comes from someone basically pointing out that the author of that article overlooked one key influence on the director's work. And the condescension in that letter was dripping. Just like, how foolish are you, New Yorker, author? That was the worst piece of work I've ever seen. As Oscar Wilde says, to the critic, the work of art is simply a suggestion for a new work of his own. Doesn't it feel like that? We work so hard on something, we produce something, we put so much tears and effort and blood and sweat and we say here it is and flies just go Zoom, and destroy it it's like oh man and we can grow very cynical about that we still produce fruit but it's not the type of fruit we wanted it's really hard and we never find the satisfaction for it that we know it should be there it's the first way work is broken the work itself has become meaningless. The second way is that the worker's motivation has become self-preservation. We talk in the church a lot about this word called sin, all right? And I know some people be like, "What?" Well, they have a pejorative understanding of it. Sin comes from the Greek word hamartano, and it simply means to fall short, right? There's an idea, there's a type, and we're falling short of it. We're unable to reach it. So work is full of sin. It's been infected by the virus of sin because it was supposed to have been big, fat, juicy grapes, but now it's measly, miserly grapes. But also you and I, the workers, we are infected by the virus of sin. We fall short because we were supposed to have worked um, as a way to express the glory of God, but instead we're looking to our work to save us. I like the way I heard this from Dave Kim who works um, at the Center of Faith and Work and Redeemer, and he goes, Work was to have been the expression of our identity. Instead, it's become the source of it. We were to have been so full of God that we desire to work, but not to prove ourselves or not to to tell us who we are. God tells us who we are. It's just the expression of our identity. But now, because we don't have God telling us who we are, we look to our work to be the source of our identity. We look to our work to tell us who we are. Am I worthy? Am I valuable? Am I good enough? We put too much weight into our work in a way that it was never supposed to have had. And Hamlet says that. He goes, then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work comes from one person's envy of another. This also is vanity, chasing after the wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun the case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers. Yet there is no end to all their toil and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they ask, and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy unhappy business. Work is not only empty, but because we fall short of the ideal of sin, we become self-serving creatures. What is he saying when he says all work is envy of another. He's saying that workers are Havel, right? It's Havel, what is envy? But looking at another and saying, oh, this person has it. Their job, their level of work, their industry, they have it. It's Havel, it's the grass is greener. And once you get there, once you get what they have, you realize, oh, that wasn't it either. That wasn't it either. There was a really bad movie put out a couple years back called In Time with Justin Timberlake. Did anyone see that movie? Yeah, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I stepped into that one. It's a great movie, it's a great movie. (laughs) The premise of the movie, I thought, was really phenomenal. And the premise goes like this. Basically, at age 25, you stop aging, and you're given a clock, and you have time that starts ticking down. So the currency in the world is not money, it's time. And so you buy and sell time. You go into careers that earn more time than others. There's a black market that develops where, you know, like you can steal time. And I think that's really fascinating because that's basically what all you and I do in this city does, right? Our currency is money, but really it's time. Really what we're trying to do by our work is not to die. And you're saying, what are you talking about? Of course we're going to die. Yes, but if I die like a Rockefeller, after I've achieved so much, my name doesn't really die. So really I'm preserving my existence. We're all trying to get out of life alive. Now what does this look like, this, This this self-preservation for how we work. Well, one, we choose careers that we're not really passionate about, but that add more time to our life, right? That have higher value in society. Tim Keller writes this, he goes, many young people see the process of career selection more as the choice of an identity marker than a consideration of gifting and passions to contribute to the world. And he writes in his book that many, at least young people in New York, they almost have this overwhelming sense that the only industries they can go into are like medicine or finance or any of these high value industries, right? Where you go into them, it doesn't matter if you're passionate about it or not, it adds more time. It's higher value. And that's not the way God sees it at all. They see it that way. We see it that way. We're not they. We see it that way, because absent of God, we're looking to our work to give us meaning of ourselves. We're looking to our work, or what people think about us in the work, all these ways to save ourselves. It's a process of salvation. We're all just trying to save ourselves every day. So we choose careers we're not really passionate about. Another way we do this, we jump from one job to the other because it furthers your career. What if God called you to not take that promotion but to stay precisely where you are because you really are good at what you do and you love what you do and you have a calling for this level of the company, whatever it is. I mean, to the world, they'd be like, who turns down a promotion? But what if you know that you're perfectly suited and passionate and love this right here? Or what if he called you to have a about face in a career? To You could get a promotion in San Francisco, but he's saying, hey, I want you to stay here in Brooklyn and work your job and love it and serve it well and also be a part of Hope Brooklyn and pour into this community. There's someone who did that, two people who did that. You know them, Nathan and Stephanie Cousins. Came here as professional actors. God had other ideas. What if that's what he said to you? We judge others who were given breaks that we weren't given. That's another way that we engage in envy, right? We judge others. Oh, they got that promotion because they did this, this, this. Oh, they got that lucky break because this, this, this. All havel, all meaningless, all saying, oh, if I just had this, then... Life would make sense and it doesn't. Or we primarily view work as what it can do and does for me. Every one of us is guilty of this. We look at our jobs not as what it does for society, not as what it does for my neighbor, not as what it does for God. We look at our jobs and our career as what it can and does do for me. Why? Because work was supposed to have been the expression of our identity, but now it's become the source of our identity. We look to our work to define us instead of looking to God to define us. And what starts as envy, says the author of Ecclesiastes, ends in isolated individuals all trying to get out of life alive. Tim Keller writes, a life of self-glorification makes unity and love between people impossible. It leaves us with the dreary choice between making the self an idol and making the group an idol. The two things we all want so desperately, glory and relationships, can only coexist with God. You won't get anything you're looking for until you realize that everything you're looking for is only found in the voice of the Father. Only found in the voice of Jesus. That's where you'll find that life that will then help you to make sense of everything else. What are we really saying? Is this true that we work for some salvific end? We're looking for our work, either the meaningfulness of the grapes or we're looking for um, our pursuit and our envy of others to save us. Is that really true? That we're seeking salvation, we're seeking to add time to our life, to preserve our name, but instead all we're experiencing is death. And I think when you look at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, God says that when you eat from the tree, you'll surely die. And I don't think he means like, I mean, he definitely means our bodies will, you know, expire. But I think what he also means is we're going to be engaged in this process of Havel all of our days. That we're going to be looking for life, for wholeness, completeness, and we're never going to find it. We're just naming today all the ways that we choose death, that we experience death. Or as WB Yeats says, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. You'll be utterly dissatisfied with your work until God is at the center. And when God's not at the center, as we're all struggling to discover, it all fractures and breaks down, all these endless ways that work is meaningless, that it doesn't produce the full grapes that we wanted, that we desired, and that we are empty and meaningless in a sense, that we envy one another and we choose careers that we don't necessarily feel passionate about as a way to save ourselves. But for Christians, we have a different story. For Christians, we know that the whole world was good. The whole world and work was good. We know that the whole world and work is broken. And the whole world and work will be restored. It'll be redeemed. We were here to have worked. We live in a world that no longer gives life. We live in a world where we now look to our work to tell us who we are instead of expressing who we are. But part three, the whole world will be restored. God is now at work again in the world, in every sector, in every industry, in every arena, in you and me to help bring the dead back to life. And even in his own incomplete way, the author of Ecclesiastes says this. Look at What do workers gain from their toil, he writes. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. I want to invite the worship team back up. And I want to end with this story. He says, the author, he has set eternity in the human heart. He set eternity. For those of us who are turning our faces toward this story and gazing upon the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are gazing upon eternity. You're gazing upon the new creation. You're gazing upon the story that says it was good, it is broken, but it will be made new. It will be restored. And guess what? He wants to do it through us. There's a short story written by J.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle. And the way the story goes is that there's a painter named Niggle. And Niggle is given uh, an idea of a tree. And he's given this vision and, like, for any artist, we're all artists in the room in some way. You know what it comes like. There's just, oh, I see this, and I, I want to create this. And he's painting. And he works really hard and really long on a leaf. Just one leaf. And he's constantly distracted by life. And his neighbors are coming over asking for help, and he's distracted by many, many things. But he's trying to, like, focus, because he sees this tree. And he's working on the leaf. And then he dies. He dies and he wakes up in paradise. And he's not sure what's going on. And there's a part of him that's kind of sad because he realized he only ever completed the leaf. He never got the whole tree. And as he's walking in paradise, he stumbles across a grove. And he looks up and he's astonished. Because there in paradise is his tree. And not not the vision, but like his tree. He can see his brush strokes on the leaves. He helped paint the tree that is now in paradise. He didn't finish it. He only barely started it. But God has put into his heart eternity. So for those of us pursuing Christ, our work, though still broken, is being redeemed. You are being, you're given a vision of what it's like to see a classroom flourishing with children who love to learn and who love one another. And though you'll never fully realize that, keep pushing toward that vision because that will be the new creation. You're given a vision of a product Um, that will benefit, that will cause deep flourishing of the world, that will bless people. And though it will not be fully realized, you may only get a leaf done, keep working at it. And I'm given a vision to paint a picture of a God who loves you so unbelievably much that I can't even describe it. And though it will never be realized to the extent I desire I'm going to keep showing up and telling you how much he loves you. The world will be restored. He has put eternity into your heart. Keep working. Keep painting that leaf. It won't be forgotten. It's actually part of the new creation. Will you pray with me? Father, we look around and we see all the ways that work is broken. We confess that many of the times the ways we work are not honoring to you. That we work from a place of fear and we work from a place of envy. We work as a way or we choose careers or we change careers or we just, we work as a way to save ourselves. We work as a way to add value to our lives in the eyes of the world. And even when we do pour out all our energy and efforts into our work, it's quickly gone. It doesn't produce what we wanted to produce. The vision in our heads is not realized by the work in our hands. And it's heartbreaking, Lord. It's tough. We can see how it's broken. Lord, I pray for every person here, and if there's anyone here who has not put you at the center of their lives, would you give them courage to simply say, I choose you, I wanna learn more about you, God. That if it's true that everything in this world that we look to, to give us meaning, none of it ever can. That it's only found in you, Lord. And give people courage to turn their faces towards you. And for the rest of us who battle that every day, who battle the lies of this world, who constantly um, are told to choose ourselves, but in your story, you tell us to choose you and to choose one another, to be servants, to make decisions about our careers, about the way we work, that the rest of the world would sneer at or not understand. Would you give us courage to do that? To not put ourselves first, but to put your first, to put you first, put your story first, to put others first. Because we don't have to work to save ourselves anymore. We're saved in you. You tell us who we are. We don't have to worry about dying and fading into oblivion because our names are written in your book of life. The world will be restored. We don't have to preserve our lives. You hold them secure so we can listen with open hands and we can be a part of the Tekken alum, the restoration of all things. We can join you in that. So give us a vision of eternity, Lord. Give us a vision of a fully flourishing classroom or, or law courtroom or or business field, wherever, whatever we're engaged in, Lord, or artist studio, or parenting. Give us a full, fully formed vision of what your flourishing looks like. Plant eternity into us. And though we know we will, we're not gonna be able to complete it, we'll only produce leaves even though we see a full tree. We're gonna give you everything we have, Jesus. We give you all that we have. We give our broken hands, our broken effort, our broken minds. It's yours. Work through us. Work through us to accomplish what only you can do. Lord, as we go this week, give people courage and grace to confess all the ways that they work brokenly and to turn their attention to you. Because in you there is meaning, there is purpose, there is life and in nowhere else. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.